Welcome to OCDQ Radio, a podcast from OCDQ Blog. Obsessive Compulsive Data Quality. OCDQ Radio is a vendor neutral podcast about data quality and its related disciplines, including data governance, master data management, and business intelligence. OCDQ Radio is produced and hosted by Jim Harris, the blogger in chief at Obsessive Compulsive Data Quality. OCDQblog.com. On this episode of OCDQ Radio, we're going to discuss measuring data quality for ongoing improvement. And for this discussion, I'm pleased to be joined by a very special guest. Laura Sebastian Coleman has worked on data quality in large healthcare data warehouses since 2003. Laura has implemented data quality metrics and reporting, launched and facilitated a data quality community contributed to data consumer training programs, and has led efforts to establish data standards and to manage metadata. In 2009, she led a group of analysts in developing the original data quality assessment framework, which is the basis for her book, Measuring Data Quality for Ongoing Improvement. As an active professional, Laura Sebastian Coleman has delivered papers at MIT's Information Quality Conferences, and at conferences sponsored by the International Association for Information and Data Quality, the IAIDQ, and the Data Governance Organization. From 2009 to 2010, she served as the IAIDQ's Director of Member Services. She holds the IQCP Information Quality Certified Professional Designation from the IAIDQ, a Certificate in Information Quality from MIT, B.A. in English and History from Franklin and Marshall College, and a Ph.D. in English Literature from the University of Rochester. If you see her, say hello. Laura Sebastian Coleman, welcome to OCDQ Radio. Thanks, Jim. We're excited to have you on the show today because you recently wrote a new book called Measuring Data Quality for Ongoing Improvements. First up, I always like to define terms. In the data quality industry, we have a lot of people who like to argue over how data quality should be defined. Fitness for the purpose of use, real-world alignment. How do you define data quality? My training has been out of the MIT School of Data Quality, and so I understand the importance of fitness for use. But I also recognize that there are certain features of data how it works as a sign of something else that make it fit for any use. So I like to step back from the term data quality itself and instead turn it around and call it the quality of data. Because I think the term data quality gets misused and often is applied to both the activities that are involved with improving the quality of data and the tools that might be used by data quality practitioners, and then the concepts about the condition of the data itself. So when I talk about quality in relation to data, I like to get very specific about the features of data that make it either fit for use or make it a successful representation of what it purports to represent. I think that's an excellent way to approach the definition of data quality or the quality of data. As you phrase it in your book, quality of data is defined by two related factors, 
how well it meets the expectations of data consumers, which is where the fitness for purpose of use comes into play. Yep. And then the other related factor is how well it represents the objects, events, and concepts it's created to represent. So to your earlier point about whether data is a successful representation of what it purports to represent, and knowing that you have a PhD in English literature and are a Joycean, I thought that you might enjoy the fact that Harry Levin, who once edited a collection of James Joyce's works, said, The novelist and the poet, through their command of words, are mediators between the world of ideas and the world of reality. Sometimes I think people mistake the world of data with the real world. So can you speak a little bit to how data is a representation of the real world or what realities are represented in data? Yeah, thank you. That's a nice frame for the way that I like to talk about data. We talk about data in ways that make it seem like it exists in and of itself. So we have this sense of data kind of existing outside of us and in these systems over which we have very little control, but which could exert control over us. And when we think of data that way, we fail to recognize that, in fact, we create data. And we create data through a series of choices that pick selected characteristics of the world and codify them so they can be represented and ideally understood by other people and also in this world of electronic data by machines. So if we need to represent characteristics of our physical existence, we may talk about our weight or our height or hair or eye color or age. And when we talk about those things, we think that those are fairly understandable, but they depend on a lot of previous thought and a lot of previous decisions about how to represent those characteristics. So something as simple as our weight, the fact that we're able to express it in one number and have other people understand it means that we're working within the same context as the people that we share that information with, we know the approximate weight of a pound. We know own individual weights. We know what it means to gain 10 pounds or lose 10 pounds. If we have to do even a simple shift in cultural context, like converting pounds to kilograms, then it's difficult for us to make those same assumptions within a different system of measurement because we're just unfamiliar with it. So we don't often recognize the fact that we create data through the choices we make on how to represent objects and events in the world. Shelley had once called the poet the unacknowledged legislator of the world, and Levine's comment about the role of the novelist is similar, that we have choices in language for how we represent ourselves, and now in the modern world we make choices in data about how we represent concepts. Sometimes what I like to tell people is that data is not literal, it's literary. Yeah. Data is an abstract description of the real world that we imbue onto the real world so that we can understand it. That's why it becomes more literary than literal. Samuel Taylor Coleridge's famous quote, The semblance of truth sufficient to procure for these shadows of the imagination that willing suspension of disbelief for the moment 
which constitutes poetic faith. Yes. Sometimes I think we forgot that we took that leap of faith when we created data to help us represent and understand and interact with the real world. But sometimes it is a convenient fiction, to borrow a Wallace Stevens term. The final belief is to believe in a fiction which you know to be a fiction. Because if you believe it to be a fiction and convince yourself that it's real, you can do some really interesting things with data. So data is not literal, it is literary. Data is a story about the real world. So coming back to your point, I think that we often forget our role as storyteller in the creation of data. Right. Part of what gets lost, and I think even people without a literary background can understand this, what gets lost is the perspective from which the data is created. So if you are trying to sell cars, you may need to know certain things about your customers, their age, their favorite color, what they bought before, those kinds of things. That's one representation of an individual as a customer. If you have a hair salon, you may need to know very different things about your customer. There may be some overlap, but you would want to know those things, like the age of the customer, you would want to know that for different reasons. And you may even have different ways of expressing it. In one instance, you may need to know whether your customer is between the age of 25 and 35, and in another instance, you may need to know the exact birth date of your customer. Both of those are ways of representing age, but for different purposes. So when we start to think about those choices, then they really do tell a story about what data we will see and what data we can expect. And they also tell a story about a set of decisions that went into a specific representation of a person or object in the real world. Most of the time, we don't typically notice data quality unless it's bad. Yes. When we come into situations where the data that represents us as a person represents us somewhat incorrectly, and we have to have rather frustrating customer service calls with people at an insurance company or a financial institution who have created this representation of us, and there are data quality errors that they're saying, well, you know, this is what the data tells me. It's like, well, I'm the actual human being. <laughs> I'm telling you that that's not correct. Again, knowing that you're a Joycey, and it brings me back to Stephen Dedalus, who was the protagonist of A Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man. In many ways, it was James Joyce's literary alter ego, because some of the aspects that describe Stephen Dedalus were actually based on Joyce's real life. That doesn't mean that Stephen Dedalus is James Joyce. Right. So with our data, we're all James Joyce, and we have created Stephen Dedalus, our data that represents us. But again, the real world doesn't equal data, but we have to work with that data and that representation and then figure out how that applies to the types of business activities that we get involved with when the real world and its data representations meet and sometimes cause problems when they conflict because of data quality issues. Yes, very well put. The real challenge with quality is when an expectation isn't met. And that expectation not being met may be rooted in the choices of how to represent the object, or it may be rooted in the actual representation. And if those expectations are not met, then that's where you come face to face with what we call a quality problem. 
We definitely have great expectations for our data. And in your book, you make a great point that there's a difference in expectation between data consumers and data producers. And sometimes people mistakenly think that the expectations were defined by the consumers, when more often it's actually defined by the producers. And that's where we start to get into problems. Exactly. Healthcare data is a good example of that. The collection of healthcare data, for example, when you go to the doctor, that provider will collect certain pieces of data in part to assess your condition and in part to be able to file a claim. However, a lot of uses of healthcare data are driven toward understanding large concepts within the healthcare system and understanding from a business point of view how to plan and underwrite and support a healthcare payer organization. So you have a very different production point, very different from how the data is used. And in between that, you have the various processes that need to happen for both the provider's business and the healthcare payer's business to work, to process claims, to pay them accurately, those kinds of things. And the system was not built as a cohesive whole. It was built in parts and it's evolved over time. So at the end of the system where people are trying to use data for analytic purposes and trend analysis and those kinds of things, they have certain expectations about what happened at the beginning of the process. And the people at the beginning of the process are not necessarily aware of all the subsequent uses of the data that they provide. So if you could show that to the folks who are at the beginning of the process and at the end of the process, there would be a lot of opportunities to improve that initial collection of data. Again, we need to be skeptical about data. We need to understand the circumstances of its creation. And then if we do want to improve the quality, we really need to look across the information chain to understand where those opportunities for improvement are. Almost every improvement is aimed at bringing together a better understanding of what's represented and how it's represented with the expectations for use. So the two have to work together if we really do want to improve overall quality within an information chain. You're listening to OCDQ Radio, a vendor-neutral podcast about data quality and its related disciplines from the Obsessive Compulsive Data Quality blog produced by Jim Harris. Visit ocdqblog.com forward slash podcast to find ways to subscribe to OCDQ Radio and get links to the blog post summaries of every episode. You'll also find ways to contact me, Jim Harris, if you're interested in being a guest on the show or if you would like to discuss sponsorship opportunities. So be sure to visit ocdqblog.com forward slash podcast for more information about OCDQ Radio. And now, back to the show. On this episode of OCDQ Radio, we are discussing data quality with Laura Sebastian Coleman, author of the book, Measuring Data Quality for Ongoing Improvement. So far, our discussion has focused on we must bring together a better understanding of what is represented in data and how it is represented with the expectations for use in order to improve overall data quality. As our discussion continues, we're going to shift our focus to two common mistakes people make when they begin a data quality initiative. There's two common mistakes that you've written about and that I've also seen. And the first one is the tools first approach to data quality. 
oh, okay, we have bad data, so we'll buy a data profiling tool and we'll buy a data cleansing tool, and that'll fix all of our data problems, right? Yeah. This is an approach that has always puzzled me, but it's puzzled me to an even greater degree as I've been involved with conferences on data quality that have both business and technical people. And as I've studied more about various approaches to quality improvement, Six Sigma and total quality management and the like, people often want to get a tool to fix things, but they don't even know what their problems are. So almost any approach to quality improvement, whether it's in manufacturing or in data or in process improvement, always says you should start with an understanding of your current state and you should determine what problems you need to solve. What are the pain points? And then you can choose the tools that are appropriate to solving those problems. But that is not usually how things start in data quality. They usually start with people buying the tools and then trying to figure out how to apply them. I had the fortunate benefit when I started my job, I did not have direct experience with data quality. I had experience with other things that I could bring to bear on my job. And when I arrived, people said, oh, we've got this great tool. And I said, gosh, I really don't know yet what my priorities are. I don't know what I need to focus on first, so I'll talk to you in a couple months. And I went through a set of assessments of data, which had been defined by my predecessor, and that allowed me to really dive into the data and to dive into the problem tickets and those kinds of things, the questions that had come up about the data, and to understand what my role was, at least in the short term. And when people came back to me and said, here are the tools, I said, these tools will not solve the problems that I have. They will tell me a profile of the data, but I've already profiled the data. So my own experience with tools was counter to what happens in a lot of organizations. And I feel like that sort of benefited me because I can say, let's define the problem first. The way you phrased it in the book was great. It is easy to get caught up in the idea that a data profiling or cleansing tool will solve data problems. It won't any more than a hammer by itself can build a porch. Not stand by that. I don't think a hammer can build a porch. <laughs> I really wish it could because I'm not very good at building things. So I really wish I could buy a magical hammer that would fix my porch for me. <laughs> yeah, I like that concept. It actually reminds me of the Stephen King short story where a character buys a typewriter at a Goodwill or something and he starts writing these great stories and then he's so successful he buys a new typewriter and suddenly can't write anymore. <laughs> We're all looking for the magical typewriter that will create perfect data for us all the time. You said in the book that the choice of tools should be driven by the goals of the assessment, which leads me into the second mistaken assumption that people make is that the data assessment mistakenly becomes a quest to find a single criminal, the root cause, rather than to understand the process that created the data and the factors that contributed to the data issues. So going back to your point about before you can solve the problem, you have to find the problem. Sometimes people say, okay, well, let's go find the one problem, the root cause, and let's just fix that. What's your perspective on that approach? Well, first of all, the paradigm of root cause analysis, I think, is really very useful. 
because it gives you a process through which to penetrate problems. The challenge is that in most cases we work in very complex environments with multiple systems that at some level are expected to interact. And so if we look for one root cause, and often people think that they can find one root cause for things, if you look for just one, you put blinders on and you don't see the breadth of the system in which you're working. You don't see risks and you don't see contributing factors and you don't see the different ways that those interact. I've been trying to talk to people lately, trying to reset assumptions with some folks. And one of the things that I've said is we often start with an assumption about simplicity of our data when all around us it's clear that our data is complex. So if we start with that assumption of simplicity, we may go after one root cause, we may actually resolve that problem, we may fix that root cause, but there may be other causes that create undesirable conditions in the data, or that cause may have other connections, we may mistakenly fix one thing only to have negative repercussions within a system or between systems. So I do think that analysis needs to identify root causes, and certainly quality improvement depends upon the resolution of root causes, but we use very dynamic systems. We can't just solve one problem and expect to be okay for the rest of our lives. Maintaining quality is an ongoing process, so we have to constantly scan the horizon and make sure we are looking for any obstacles that might prevent the data from being in the condition that we expect it to be in and that we define as high quality. That's an excellent point. I really like your emphasis on root causes as a plural instead of using root cause as a singular. It made me think of how we use the word data as a singular noun, even though it is a plural noun. Perhaps we should also think of root cause as a plural noun, although we often use it as a singular noun. That way we can remember that just like data analysis is not focused on a single datum, root cause analysis is not focused on a single root cause. A lot of times I'll talk about root causes and contributing factors because I want to make sure people have a wide enough scope for what they need to look for. You're listening to OCDQ Radio, a vendor-neutral podcast about data quality and its related disciplines from the Obsessive Compulsive Data Quality blog produced by Jim Harris. Visit ocdqblog.com forward slash podcast to find ways to subscribe to OCDQ Radio and get links to the blog post summaries of every episode. You'll also find ways to contact me, Jim Harris, if you're interested in being a guest on the show or if you would like to discuss sponsorship opportunities. So be sure to visit ocdqblog.com forward slash podcast for more information about OCDQ Radio. And now, back to the show. On this episode of OCDQ Radio, we are discussing data quality with Laura Sebastian Coleman, author of the book, Measuring Data Quality for Ongoing Improvement. In the final segment of our conversation, we're going to discuss definitions of five dimensions of data quality. When we get into talking about defects or, or data quality issues, it brings another Joycean phrase to mind that mistakes are the portals of discovery. 
So we can think that data quality issues are portals of discovery into what could be a business process problem, or it could be a people problem, or some type of data management problem. In your book, you focus on five dimensions of data quality, completeness, timeliness, validity, consistency, and integrity. Can you give us a definition of those five dimensions? Completeness as a concept means having all the necessary or appropriate parts. When we talk about data completeness, we can talk about it horizontally, saying that the data has all the attributes that are expected. You can talk about it, in a sense, vertically, saying that the data set is as fully populated as expected. Do you have the records that pertain to a particular period of time? Do you have the records that pertain to a particular population or the like? You make the distinction in the book of width, depth, and density. As you just said, the horizontal, the vertical, and then the extent in which we had the desired attributes. Each of these is measured differently. So completeness is, I think, sometimes it's oversimplified to maybe just the depth. Do we have all the records? And these three different aspects of completeness all have a very important dimension of the data. So I like how you get that broken out. And that does give you, forgive the pun, but much more complete definition of completeness. Sometimes I hear people talking about timeliness versus currency. So what does timeliness mean for you? As is the case with completeness, there are different facets of timeliness. And a very important one is the currency of the data. We can talk about whether the data is out of date or whether we have the most up-to-date records. There's always this facet of latency. And so we talked about the timely delivery of data and the timely processing of data. And when you talk about the timeliness of data processing, you can set reasonable expectations based on the historical experience of data processing, and you can detect changes in data processing, which can tell you about other conditions of the data that might be undesirable. Again, it's often oversimplified, and you break timeliness down to three aspects as well. Data lag, information float, and volatility. So data lag is that time between when the data is updated in the source and when it finally becomes available to the consumers at the other end of the information chain. So that could be just the lag time in processing. Information float is the lag between when a fact becomes known and when it's available for use. So something about the real world object has changed, but we just don't know about it yet. And then volatility, the degree to which data is likely to change over time, because there are some data attributes that are far less volatile. Overly simplistic example would be gender. For most people, there are other fields like annual salary, which are very volatile for people like me who are a freelance writer. <laughs> But it's important that we don't oversimplify timeliness, just like we don't oversimplify completeness. So not another term that means different things to different people. Your third dimension is validity. So what does that mean? Validity is one of those words that people use in a haphazard way. And what I've tried to do is really focus the definition by saying that validity is conformity to a domain of values. That domain of values may be actual set of valid values. Here are the five or six values you can use. It may be a range of values, or it may be a rule that would generate a value. 
The reason that I try to make that distinction is because in order to test validity and in order to measure it, you need to know what you're comparing your data set to. And if you don't have the rules or you don't have the domain, then you don't have criteria for validity. A simple example in the United States would be state. So you live in Connecticut, I live in Iowa. USPS postal standards would say that CT and IA are the valid postal abbreviations for Connecticut and Iowa. So in order for me to validate the state field, I need that domain of values of what is a valid, in this case, two-character abbreviation for our state of residence. Correct. A related concept, which you talk about in the book, is the difference between that and accuracy. Because yes, Connecticut and Iowa are both states, and CT and IA are the valid abbreviations. But I could say I live in Iowa when I actually live in New York. Right. So even though I'm using a valid value, it doesn't accurately represent where I am. So do you find a lot of people confuse the terms validity and accuracy? And do you use accuracy in that regard or in a different way? I made a deliberate choice to not claim to be able to measure accuracy. And accuracy is the thing that most people associate with data quality. They want to know, is the data accurate? And the reason that I didn't include that as a dimension that we could measure is that accuracy needs to be measured in comparison to the real thing out there. So I would need to walk across the country, know when I pass the Iowa border, knock on your door and say, are you Jim Harris? Am I in Iowa? <laughs> Fully say, yes, I have accurate information about where you live. So when we measure what we call accuracy, oftentimes what we're really looking at is either a record or a surrogate for the real thing in the real world, a surrogate that we have confidence in. And so what it means is we validate against that surrogate of the real world. Ability is on much sounder ground for something that you can measure. Accuracy sometimes is almost just a really strong assumption that's hard to test. I think most people don't actually get to accuracy, but they really run themselves in circles trying to come up with a way to measure it, yes. when what they really should be trying to do is measure validity first. And then when there is that second order validation for accuracy, then you can do it. But understand that there are going to be some times where accuracy will either have to be assumed or will not be able to be measured with the same level of confidence that validity is. Right. So I skipped over two of the dimensions, consistency and integrity. So what are those two dimensions? Consistency is the degree of similarity or the absence of variety. At an abstract level, that's what it is. Within data, as is the case with some of the other dimensions, we have different ways that we can measure consistency. One is consistency of similar data over time. And within healthcare data, this is very important because there is an expectation that certain kinds of procedures will take place more frequently than other kinds of procedures. People will go to their doctor and their chiropractor more often than they'll have a heart transplant. There's an expectation of consistency about costs associated with certain procedures. And there's also an expectation of certain risks involved with populations of people 
who's more susceptible to various diseases and those kinds of things. So when you talk about healthcare data, much of the analysis that's done is of trends over time. And when people are looking for changes in trends, they're basically looking for unexpected inconsistencies. So you can use the same techniques that you use in trend analysis to look at consistency. If you detect differences, then sometimes those differences are expected. There are changes over time. But other times they can indicate systematic problems and those need to be explored. So last but not least, integrity. What is integrity as a dimension? Integrity as a concept refers to how parts fit together, so how the pieces make one whole thing. And when we think about data, integrity is a vital component of data quality. There are aspects of data that people understand only through the concept of integrity. If you have a large database, a warehouse or a mart that contains records from a range of systems, then people who are using that data have an expectation that they will be able to connect the pieces from those different systems. They need to understand all the records associated with one hospital or all of the records associated with one particular type of disease. They expect the data to be integrated. And oftentimes, because the systems themselves from which data originates, those systems do not necessarily make the same choices in how they represent similar concepts. There will be differences between those representations, and it's hard to make those connections unless there's some level of data processing that brings the data together. So the integrity of data is one of the first things that people will question if they're not able to use the data in ways that they expect. When we talk about the measures of integrity, we're really talking about the measures between different tables in the database, whereas some of the other measures, the consistency, completeness, validity, those can be taken either on a single attribute or pairs or small sets of attributes. But integrity measures are really about how you join data from different data sets or from different tables and how well it fits together. So when earlier we were talking about data as a representation, when different choices are made in how to represent similar concepts and data doesn't fit together, then oftentimes people will not understand why it doesn't and their expectations will not be met if the data doesn't fit together. Well, if your organization is trying to get a better understanding of its data and why its expectations for data quality are not being met, then I highly recommend that you pick up a copy of the book, Measuring Data Quality for Ongoing Improvement, a Data Quality Assessment Framework. We have had the pleasure of talking with the author, Laura Sebastian Coleman. Laura, thank you so much for joining us on OCDQ Radio today. You're welcome, and I appreciate the opportunity, Jim. Thank you for listening to OCDQ Radio. Go to ocdqblog.com forward slash podcast, where you can find links to the blog post summaries of every episode, ways to subscribe to OCDQ Radio via iTunes and a non-iTunes RSS feed, and a link to listen to OCDQ Radio on your mobile device with Stitcher Smart Radio. And you will find ways to contact me, Jim Harris, via Twitter, LinkedIn, and email. 
So be sure to visit ocdqblog.com forward slash podcast. Thanks again for listening to OCDQ Radio. And until next time, may the data quality be with you always.